Good Wednesday morning, everybody. I wanted to hit record. John and I have been talking for a little bit here. I was thinking, well, if anything comes out of it that's useful, we'd love to share it with uh, with you guys. Uh, him and I were just talking about families. He showed me a photo of his family, and he was mentioning how there's just no divorce in it. And that got me thinking about, um, I live in Boise, Idaho, and I just recently attended a Young Life event where they did a fundraiser. And one of the gentlemen got up and was talking about uh, the youth in our valley specifically and how 40% of them, I think, are depressed and 30% or more actually um, have considered it suicide. And so now me and John are just dialoguing back and forth about marriage and divorce and youth. So, and you were saying something about tacit knowledge. Oh, yeah. The, the world that we inhabit that we have somehow to show to the people around us. And when we do, and we hit the right note, they buy in very quickly uh, to at least an understanding that we have something they need to think about. And divorce is one of those issues. But at the heart of our lives is uh, something that science can't talk about. And what you were telling me that you've been reading Foolishness to the Greeks now, one of the, the most important ideas that's developed in that book is the idea of tacit knowledge, the things that we know without thinking about them. And we've acquired them along the way uh, in all sorts of ways. Uh, I couldn't spend the next hour with examples of that, but one example would be sufficient um, uh, to make the point. Uh, some years ago, uh, the beginning of my now, coming out, if you like, in the academic world as Christian, uh, I was an ivory tower professor and very happy, uh, but I was persuaded to give a talk for a fundraiser for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, the guy wasn't interested in raising money, if he asked me, because I was going to talk about why I didn't go when I was a student or why I gave up going. But he said they need to hear what you've got to say, but try and be a little less cynical if you can. But what came out of that was there was a young man who just got into medical school, our medical school, and after a few weeks, he timorously knocked on my door and asked whether I was actually a Christian, which was a fair comment. And then I said, yes, uh, but you won't see much evidence here. Um, you'd have to come to my home to see that it does actually exist. Uh, then he said, in the talk you gave in, in Ottawa, you said that the probability of an evangelical student coming out of medical school with their faith intact is only about 20%. And he said, there are four of us in first year who don't want to lose our way, will you help? And I was about to say no when one of those tacit knowledge things happened. Immediately at the back of my head, so to speak, there was my mother saying, you could do that, you ought to do that, do it. So instead of saying no, which would have been my response, I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, would you do some Bible studies to help us integrate our faith into the medical world that we're entering? And so I said, okay, you better come to my house at 8 o'clock in the evening, or I can't remember if it was Wednesday or Thursday, uh, and uh, I'll do four weeks. Well, I ended up doing 10 years. Because once you allow nice young people into your home, you can't dismiss them anymore because they've become persons. But we'll talk a lot more about that as we go along. There's a dimension of reality there that the scientific world can't handle. That's why psychology thinks it knows the answers, but it's very ineffective. 
And Jesus tells you, by their fruits you shall know them. If they tell you they know how to do everything and they divorce more than other people, don't believe them. Look at the figures. Tom Sowell, show me the data. Uh, we need to do a lot more of that. We're not skeptical enough about the world around us. We've been taught that science is always right. Well, some bits of science are a provisional picture of what the truth is, but that it's always right is absolutely silly. Uh, we're always making progress. Mainly it's a little bit here and a little bit there. And every now and again, there's a, a paradigm shift. But it can't answer any of the existential questions. Real quick, if I could ask you a question. How many grand, how many kids do you have? Including Victor, who I include as a son. Uh, we have uh, five children, all of whom are married, and all of whom are children themselves. So we have 22 grandchildren. And do you want to hold up a photo of them? Yeah. If you're watching this on the podcast, you can't see it. But if you go find this on YouTube, you can see a photo of it. Um, and what, in terms of divorce, you made mention to me that none of them are divorced. What, how would you, I'm not even sure the question asked, how would you interpret that? Or what are your thoughts towards that? Or what would you like to share in light of that? Well, when a way of life is deeply enculturated, then there's all sorts of implicit good things that happen to that society. And that's what all the people who are trying to run the world at the moment simply do not understand. That The reason that could happen is that I was blessed to inhabit a story that goes back to Genesis. I mean, when, when God decided it's time for Israel to become a nation, having spent four centuries in slavery in order to prepare to become a nation, which wouldn't be the normal preparation process, he gives them the law. And he says to them, Bar Moses, the law that you have is better than anyone else's. How politically incorrect can you get? But he goes on to say, and they will acknowledge that because our God is, clear, is near to us in a way that they can't ever have experienced. So that reality is at the heart of Judeo-Christian culture and it's culture we're talking about here. Now, he says, if you will keep this law, you will flourish. But if you don't, there will be consequences. He's introducing them to a morally consequential universe where what you do has consequences now and later and you do well to think about them. And he says, you're, it's too late for many of you already because you've become so ingrained with your way of life that you're going to struggle for the rest of your life. But if your children are properly educated, they will do much better than you. So by insisting that the heart of Judaism is not in the synagogue but in the, in the home, where Father teaches the history that's in the Bible, the stories that are in the Bible to their children. Now, the point about them is they're all morally consequential. Now, children at the age that you're doing this, say, between when they first arrive, you can read to them from day one, um, up until about eight or nine, when the, some of them will start revolting in one way or another. But you've got that period of time, and they have minds like steel traps at that point. So every story you read to them, they will remember. 
and with the appropriate stimulus, it will come back. Um, I had a wonderful example of just how amazing this can be. Uh, some years ago, I was doing a conference for medical students, and uh, just after we'd started, uh, a couple with five children walked in at the back. Dad and the boy came and sat, well, the oldest boy came and sat in the front row while Babs and the others were at the back, and she'd brought toys and they played on the carpet, but she listened. They had been in my Bible study at Ottawa U, and I had preached at their wedding. Uh, they were friends, but I hadn't seen them for some time. Uh, we were talking about this issue of children and the raising of children and how you can do much more than you imagine with very simple maneuvers. And they said, well, w we have done what you suggested. We have read the Bible to our children from day one. Uh, and they've stayed with the same version, and they use the King James, not because it's a better version, but because of all, li all of English literature uses it. So if, they, if you're gonna, you can help their performance in English literature because they will understand the metaphors that 90% of the class won't. And then Bab said, you know, I've forgotten the name of their oldest son now, but when he got to be about five, he joined in a conversation at the dining room table and he quoted a passage of scripture which had been read to him in the first year of his life and it had not been read to him since. Uh, but it was there and the stimulus arrived and out it popped. We have no idea what's going on inside their heads at that time. Uh, we are so different from all the other animals in this respect. I mean, Chesterton captures it brilliantly. I just read this week in Orthodoxy, the last chapter of Orthodoxy, um, where he, he looks at the, the sheer amazement that should overcome us when we really think about what Christianity is like, uh, including this phenomenon. Uh, it's brilliant. So if, they, if you bring up children that way, they have moral consequence built into them before they, they've thought about any of these abstract ideas. And when that is passed on from generation to generation, um, it brings all sorts of goods with it. Now, England is a good example of the fact that evangelism is not the main phenomenon for this. Evangelism is the entry ticket, if you like. Uh, when you see the truth of God and call Jesus Lord and mean it, then your life changes. But it's what you do next that matters. Is your family one way that the scriptures will be read to the children. I didn't do as well as my parents did with me um, because I didn't come to life in the right way till somewhat later. But when you do that, it has incredible, incredibly positive effects. So the working class in Britain stopped going to church at the beginning of the 20th century in any regular amount. Only a very small percentage of working class people went to church. It was a middle-class affair to a considerable degree, with serious evangelicals in the working class as well. There were only three families in our street of 400 houses uh, that went to church regularly. Um, that's astonishingly low. But no divorce. I can't remember any divorce growing up. Didn't happen. Uh, if, a, if a boy got a girl pregnant, he married her, that was it. You got on with your life, sucked up, you did it. You made your bed, lie in it, they said. And by large, people did. 
Uh, we didn't lock our doors. There were no attacks on women. Uh, we didn't have any PC rubbish being taught at school about uh, how you deal with the opposite sex or anything like that. It was all very traditional. There was some drunkenness, of course, uh, you know, but just six houses from us, six doors from us, there was a lady with severe multiple sclerosis. Um, her husband was a bricklayer. He'd get her up in the morning and put her in the chair before he went off to work, and she'd be in her chair in the kitchen all day. The door was not locked. Everybody came in and out. The milkman would deliver the milk, not put it, leave it on the step. He'd come round, see if she was okay. So would the postman. So would the neighbours. Everybody knew about her. There was never any problem. That's the consequence of having so many basics in place. We didn't even cheat at sport, particularly cricket, because cheating was wrong. Now, we're Darwinian. Well, this, cheating isn't a concept, uh, except you just look at the birds. There are birds who mate with as many males who mate with as many females as they can, and cuckoos who even get other uh, birds to raise their eggs by dropping their egg in somebody else's net and pushing a couple of the other ones out. That's the Darwinian world. All that matters is reproductive advantage, nothing else. So is it surprising that we're in trouble? That's not a big enough story for human beings because, as Augustine puts it so beautifully uh, in the first chapter of uh, the, uh, the Confessions, worth buying the book for this line alone. That's where the line about there being a, a hole in everybody's heart, the shape of God, he puts it this way. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the, the divine. The divine restlessness, and the young people are not being taught about it. The, the, the church constantly wants to make people happy instead of trying to make them wise, which we can do. We can't make them happy. Uh, only God can do that. Happiness is a subjective phenomenon, is in God's hands, and if you're doing his will, he can make you happy in the most unhappy places on earth. But what we can do is obedience. I mean, the Christian definition of love is not at all subjective. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's a killer, isn't it? There isn't a Christian alive today who could sit back in their chair and say, well, I'm keeping all your commandments, Lord. It's not one. As Paul says, I'm still struggling at the end of his life, but I press on. Because we know completion doesn't happen here. Only progress happens here. When we see him, shall we like him? That's the huge promise. And the whole process is designed to make that a good meeting. It's a training. I think that's a good spot to wrap that up. Hopefully, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We appreciate you guys listening on these Wednesday mornings or whichever day you choose to listen. And if you guys have questions for Dr. John, feel free to ask him at www.johnpatrick.com forward slash ask. With that being said, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Mm -hmm.